Okay, I've got a couple of uh, announcements to remind everybody about this evening. We're going to be moving around in the Old and New Testament, so this is going to be one of those fun little classes to deal with some uh, interesting things. A congregational meeting on Sunday, February the 17th, that'll be immediately following the morning worship service. And again, I encourage you that if you are, um, wait a minute, how come I'm not seeing anything up there? Did we change, oh, we did the DVD Sunday at the funeral? Somebody needs to switch some dials. Okay, got to keep you guys on your toes. Um so we'll have the, uh, the, the, the congregational meeting. If you're not a member, I encourage you to stay just so you know what's going on with the church business and such. And then also to remind you that we will have one voting issue, and that is that uh, we've recommended Greg Freehoff Sr. To be, the, um, to be on the deacon board, and so we'll have a vote for that approval on, uh, at the congregational meeting. Also, a reminder on Camperete Garage Sales to see Melanie Karn or Jeff if uh, can't find Melanie. And then the pastor's conference is coming up like a freight train at the end of a very narrow tunnel. It's coming fast. So we have sign-up sheets for volunteers in the fellowship hall to help with uh, transportation and various other needs that, that, uh, that we have. So... Uh, be prepared for that. Also, on uh, Thursday night, I've had a couple of people asking me about the service for my dad at uh, Arlington National Cemetery last uh, f- last Friday, and we had some great pictures and some video. The video may take a week or two before that gets uh, uploaded to the Internet, but uh, I'll be showing a few pictures Thursday night and giving a little bit more of a report on that. I wanted to wait until I had a little higher uh, resolution pictures before... Uh, before doing that. Scripture says that we need to come to the Lord in fellowship, which means that we need to take time to make sure we are in fellowship, which means silent prayer, opportunity for everyone to confess their sins if necessary, and silent prayer using 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to uh, once again be reminded of how uh, your word has an internal integrity that is beyond any human book, that each of the 66 books of Scripture intersect with one another, and Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in New Testament events, and New Testament events are explained in light of Old Testament types, prophecies, and foreshadowings. And Father, tonight as we get into a little more analysis on the Apostle Paul's uh, presentation of the gospel to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, we pray that you would help us to think our way through these things that we might properly understand the scripture and begin to get some measure of control over what is revealed in these Old Testament prophecies and how we can use them in the process of our own uh, witnessing to those you bring into our path. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We're in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We'll move around a little bit, but uh, somebody sent me an amusing little uh, cartoon the other day. I just thought I would share with everyone. This is a little cartoon, and we have this little mouse character who says, well, I have not gone to church in a long time. His friend says, oh, yeah, why is that? He says, I'm perfect now. A lot of people think that. Of course, his friend says. Then he says, sure has freed up a lot of time to get drunk watching football. Just did that in honor of the Super Bowl the other night. Okay, Acts chapter 13, focus on these messianic prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. Now, this is important to get under our belt. You should understand a few key passages in the Old Testament. Some of you who have been around a while should be able to, just off the top of your head, think of three or four passages from the Old Testament that give clear messianic predictions. And the foremost one should, in your mind should be what? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Okay, is it going to be in a long book or a short book? <laughs> Early book or late book? I want to get those brain cells working tonight. Now, by this time, the person you're going to witness to is gone. You missed out. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Now, there's two psalms that are really important for Messianic prophecies. In fact, they're some of the most frequently cited. And they are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Now, if we were back in the Hebrews, when, which we studied a few years ago, those verses showed up several times each in the epistle to the Hebrews. As a writer to the Hebrews weaves together Psalm 110 and Psalm 2-7, these are fundamental verses for grasping a lot of different features related to the uh, messianic kingship, uh, the divine kingship of the Messiah and, and the deity of Christ. And so we need to look at, at, at those. And Psalm 2-7 is quoted and, and cited here in, um, here in Acts 13. And this is not, these aren't easy verses to deal with. And the reason is, is because our English translations are not the best of the Hebrew text. But not only do we have that problem, but the Hebrew text has been, has been uh, altered by virtue of Masoretic interference. And I pointed this out a few years ago. If you're really interested in this topic, go back and listen to a series I did at Christmas in 2010, I believe. It was either 9 or 10 dealing with Messianic prophecies. And without changing the word, because Hebrew was written, the, the inspired version, the inspired original was written just in consonants. Hebrew was written just in consonants without vowels. But when the Masoretes, who were scribes in the, in the early church age period, who were responsible for uh, the the copying the and preserving the, the text and or, organizing and maintaining the text of the Hebrew scriptures, as Christianity made greater and greater inroads into the Jewish community, 
the rabbis had a terrible time trying to protect uh, their fortress and to keep Christians from using uh, Hebrew scriptures to to act as if they actually predicted Jesus. And there were several places where they sort of messed around with the words by changing the vowel points. And this is what happened in, in the early part of the Christian era is in order to preserve the pronunciation of the uh, of the Hebrew words, the Masoretes developed a system of, of putting points, uh, sometimes a single dot or three dots or two dots or a, or a vertical line or horizontal line under a letter, and that those stood for vowels. And sometimes you could change a word simply by changing the vowels that were under the word. Because just like in English, if you take the word here, H-E-R-E, and the word here, H-E-A-R, and you just write the, vowel, the the consonants, they both are spelled identically, H-R. But if you insert, if you originally have the vowels H-E-R-E and you change them to H-E-A-R, you've changed the meaning of the word. Here, H-E-A-R is completely different from the word here, H-E-R-E. And so there are places in, in, in Messianic prophecies where key words were monkeyed with by changing the vowel points and changed the meaning of the word. And what it did, and we'll see this in Psalm 110, verse 3, is it just changes the meaning of the verse completely. In fact, it basically makes that verse untranslatable in Hebrew. It just doesn't make sense. You can translate it, but it makes no sense in context. It's just gobbledygook. And this was, many scholars, many Christian scholars believe this was an intentional effort on the part of the Masoretes to change the meaning of the text so that it would not have an obvious messianic reference and be related to a messianic prophecy. So we have to deal with some of those issues, and we have to understand these things. That means writing little notes down the margin of your Bible so you can uh, relate to these things. Okay, as we look at the context of what Paul is saying to the synagogue, in, uh, in uh, Acts 13, his background is the Abrahamic covenant. Just to review you, the Abrahamic covenant, the key verse, there are many others, Genesis 12, 1 through 13, God promised Abraham a specific piece of real estate, this land I will give to you and your generations in perpetuity. He promised that, that there would be a seed, that um, uh, he would give Isaac, I mean, give um, Abraham descendants. And through his seed, singular, all nations would be blessed. So he promises a third thing, which is worldwide blessing. So three components to the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. Now later on, all three of these aspects of the Abrahamic covenant are expanded in their own independent covenants. The land covenant is expanded in Deuteronomy 30, which begins in that first verse talking about a covenant different from the one given at Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. So if it's not the one given at Mount Horeb, which would be the, the uh, Mosaic covenant, it's a different covenant. And this is a covenant that related to the promise that God made that Israel would eternally possess the land. Now, they wouldn't enjoy possession unless they were 
rightly related to God spiritually. But the ownership of the land, the title of the land, God said was theirs forever. But if they were disobedient, God would remove them from the land. And in the Old Testament, we have an example of this. We have an example where God uh, brought in the, the Babylonians. Well, first he brought in the Assyrians in 722 to remove the northern kingdom of Israel. Then in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated uh, by, by the Babylonians. And most of the Jews, but not all, were deported into other nations and removed from their historic homeland. But they never lost title to the land. Now, the Assyrians followed their policy of, of repopulating the land by redistributing other pop, defeated populations into uh, areas they conquered, and that way they would disperse these ethnic groups so they couldn't join together in a revolt. And so they brought in a lot of other uh, ethnic groups from around the Assyrian Empire and repopulated the area of the northern kingdom. But there were still members of those northern ten tribes in the area. They had fled south to Judea during the uh, invasion by the Assyrians. So you didn't lose the ten tribes. That's, that's one of those historical myths that they're the lost ten tribes. I don't know, maybe, maybe some historian lost them because he doesn't believe the Bible, but they weren't lost. God knew where they were, but the Bible's very clear that they moved south when they saw the Assyrians coming. They evacuated their homes, and they moved south, and therefore those, all those tribes had uh, remnant groups that, that continued in the land. But then in 586, they were removed. Now, for 70 years, they were out of the land, but they still had ownership of the land, and that's demonstrated historically because God brought them back to the land, and the people that had come in in the intervening period had no rights to the land. Now, that was a 70-year period, but it sets a historic precedent for a second time when the Jewish people would be out of the land. It wasn't 70 years this time. It's 2,000 years from AD, almost 2,000 years, rather, from A.D. 70 till, till the early part of the 20th century. But the principle is the same. If the Jewish people still owned the land and still had a right of return in uh, 538 B.C., they still have the right of return in 1948 A.D., and it doesn't matter what the U.N. says. It doesn't matter what the European Union says. It doesn't matter what any Arab leader says. Uh, the only people that have the title deed to that piece of real estate are the people that God says have the title deed, and that's the Jewish people. And that's the only piece of real estate in the whole world that where God has guaranteed a title deed. Americans don't have a right to uh, our land. Uh, the British don't have a right to, divine right to their land. The Germans don't have a divine right to their land. The Russians don't have a divine right to their land. The Japanese, the Chinese, nobody else has a divine right to their piece of real estate. There's only one piece of real estate on the whole planet that God has given a divine contract to and, and has sworn to, and that's that piece of real estate between the Euphrates and the Mediterranean that God has given to the Jewish people. That's the land covenant. The second covenant is the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant when God promised an eternal descendant to David that would sit on his throne forever and ever. And the eternal aspect of that would indicate that whoever fulfilled the covenant would have eternality as part of their character. 
which would indicate and hints at deity, that this would be a divine king. That's important for understanding our passage. And then there was a promise of eternal, uh, of a new nature that comes when the new covenant is put into effect, and the new covenant is said to be between God and Judah and Israel. And it's never said to be with the church. And God said when he brought that into effect, there would be a new heart among all of the Jewish people. And this doesn't occur until the Messianic king comes to establish his kingdom. When you look at all the different passages related to the... um, the New Covenant, it's only used in one passage, but the, the ideas are present in a number of other passages, and they all come into uh, existence at the time that the king takes his throne. When he is crowned a king and he takes his place upon the throne of David. Now, that's also important, this coronation imagery, the crowning of the king and establishing upon him upon the throne are inherent to these passages that Paul's using in Psalm 2. And so we have to understand that. So the uh, the Abrahamic covenant is a backdrop to what Paul says in Acts 13. The Davidic covenant is also a backdrop. Uh, three passages, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 is the primary. Psalm 89 is a meditation upon the Abrahamic covenant, First Chronicles seventeen eleven to fourteen, is the parallel passage in Chronicles for the Davidic covenant. God promised David an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. This is a, a kingdom, a house, and a throne that is without end. So this is the foundation, and that we see this connection in these verses. Now we're starting. Uh, not quite where I left, left off last time. We're backtracking just a little bit to make sure some points are made. Acts 13.32, Paul says, And we declare to you glad tidings. We declare to you glad tidings. That whole phrase that I have underlined is represented by one word in the Greek text, evangelizo. And it is a word that indicates uh, it's a first-person plural, so that's where you get the we. And the idea of evangelizo is to announce good news, to announce good tidings, to announce uh, uh, good information, bringing a great, a good message. Now, that is then defined in the next phrase as the promise. What is the good information? Now, if you look at the, at the text up there, you'll see that there's an M dash between tidings and that, that sometimes editors will use an M dash, sometimes they'll use a colon, but what that is indicating is that the next phrase that begins with a that uh, is an explanation of the content of the good message, the good news. And the good news is the, about the promise that was made to the fathers. Now, if you're an American and you're patriotic, when you hear the word the fathers, you may think of the founding fathers in 1776. But if you're Jewish sitting in a synagogue in the first century and you hear the reference to the fathers, then you're going to think of the fathers of the nation Israel, Abraham, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the emphasis is on the male line because it is the male line that is going to end with the male seed, who male descendant, who is the heir, the king, heir 
of David and the Messiah. You know, sometimes you get folks today who who get get their uh, get all upset because you leave out the women, and they think that God's a misogynist. Well, you have two options here. Number one, either God is a misogynist, in which case he is he is a, a, a sinner and he's all out of sorts, and God's really a nasty, evil God. Or the people have their mentality all twisted out of shape, and they're nasty and evil because they have distorted uh, the roles of women and men. And the reality is that people, human beings, because of sin, have their sense of priorities and their sense of identity all corrupted because of sin. And so they're the ones that are out out of order. So the promise was made to the fathers. Now, this is a, a statement that is very common to the Apostle Paul. We've studied these passages before in other series, but I want to just point some of these things out to you. And so, first of all, I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 4. We're just going to take a little tour. We've done this, covered some of this before recently in our Roman series. But if you'll notice in Romans chapter 4, verse um, verse 13, we have a use of this word promise. For the promise that he, that is Abraham in context, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. In other words, the, what Paul's emphasizing there is that receiving the promise, which had to do with the promise that God made to Abraham within the Abrahamic covenant related to the uh, uh, Israelites and related to ju- justification and, uh, if, and future salvation, that that, uh, that promise, the realization of that promise was not on the basis of human obedience, that is, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, that is, simply trusting and believing God that he would give it. This is the basis, if you go back about four verses to verse 9, uh, Paul says, does this blessedness, that is, the blessing of verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That applies to a person who's going to go to heaven. Uh, that blessing, in verse 9, uh, doesn't come upon the circumcised only, on, or, but also upon the uncircumcised. That's Paul's point. For we say that faith was accounted or imputed to Abraham for righteousness. In other words, you, don't, you can't be righteous enough to get the blessing of the promise, but you receive it and you trust in Christ as Savior. So the promise... Of the, to be heir of the world, and that has to do with salvation, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. That's the point. It, the promise wasn't to be realized through the law, but through the righteousness that comes from faith. Then in verse 13, Paul went on to say, for if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, those who think they get there through good works, in Judaism that means those who get there through performing uh, good deeds, mit, uh, uh, mitzvot, the commandments, which bring righteousness, tzedakah, uh, that, uh, that the, uh, those who are of the law, who believe that by performing the mitzvot, they can get, become righteousness. He says, if, and he means if and they are not, that's the basis of the Greek grammar there, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. 
I mean, it's either faith or works as far as Paul's concerned. And that's true in the Old Testament. He's going to give the classic example here in a minute. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made to no effect. The promise is realized through faith. That's the assumption. Verse 15, he says, because the law brings about condemnation. For where there is no law, there's no, uh, there's, there's no transgression. Verse 16, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to, that would be to, uh, a way of talking about the Jews, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Then he said, as it is written, I've made, uh, uh, then, then let's skip down to verse uh, 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So this is where he mixes his faith with the promise of God and realizing it's of God's grace that he's going to receive the promise. Now, that's Romans 4. Paul says the promise is related to salvation, and realization of that promise is on the basis of faith alone. Now, he says the same thing over in Galatians 3. So you always want to connect those passages in Romans 4 with these passages in Galatians 3. And actually, the passage in Galatians 3 is much broader than just the um, three verses these three representative verses that I put up on the screen. Uh, if you start in about verse 14, we have the first uh, mention of promise. It says that the uh, and, but let's get the whole context starting in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us or purchased us or paid the price for us from the curse of the law. Now the curse of the law was that that unless you were completely clean, you couldn't get into the presence of God and no, no sac animal sacrifice could do that. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, which became a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might be upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That blessing of Abraham we saw in Romans 4 is equivalent to the promise. The promise is a promise of blessing. That blessing, that promise, those that go together, of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what's interesting is if you do a word study on the Greek word epangelio, which is the word translated promise, and you run that in the New Testament, that word promise relates to two things, basically. One is the promise that Jesus made in Acts 1 of the coming of the Holy Spirit, which occurs in Acts 2. So that's one promise that is referred to, but that's a New Testament promise. The other use of the word promise is what we see in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2, which relates to the promise to Abraham. So those are the two main big promises that you have in the, in the Bible, the promise uh, to Abraham in the Old Testament and the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon the church age believers in the New Testament. So if you skip down to verse 16, Paul writes, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
Now notice he says that the text in the Old Testament doesn't say to seeds, plural, as of many. This is one reason we believe in in, uh, verbal inspiration. Each word down to whether it's singular or plural is significant because Paul looks back and says it doesn't say seeds, plural. You can't mess around just because you don't like the, the maybe the uh, the case or the number or, or something else grammatically about the word. Every word is what it is because that's what the Holy Spirit intended. It didn't, doesn't say seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed which is Christ. So Christ is the one who becomes the, the, the effective agent of bringing about the promise of the blessing. And he goes on to say in verse 17, and I, this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ. So the law, the promise is made to Abraham based on faith. That's 430 years before the law. So the law is not significant for realizing the blessing. The law is against grace. So the law is out. It's not important for salvation. And the Abrahamic covenant has its fulfillment on the law, but in the coming of Christ. And then he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance of the law is no, for if the inheritance is from the law, then it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's his logic. It's grace, grace, grace. God freely gives us based upon his character, based upon who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. That's the key, remembering that. Okay, so Galatians 3 reiterates the emphasis on the promise. Then just let's just do a flyby here on Ephesians 2, two verses. Ephesians 2.12, that at the time, talking to the Ephesian believers, mostly Gentiles, a few Jews, that at the time you, being Gentiles, were without Christ, that is, in the, talking in terms of Old Testament period, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. The covenants of promise, those Abrahamic covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, those covenants, according to Romans 9, belong to the Jewish people forever and ever and ever. They are eternal covenants. And so the Gentiles are considered strangers because they weren't part of the covenant contract. They're not part of the first part, which is God, or part of the second part, which is Israel. Uh, so they had, because their condition was not related, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. But Christ came, and that's the whole section between 2.12 and 3.6, that the Gentiles should be made fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So we become partakers of the promise of Abraham by virtue of our position in Christ. Okay, that's why we, Paul emphasizes this thing again and again and again, that when you, are, and you and I are saved, we're identified with Christ, we're made part of his body, and by virtue of that, we become heirs of the promise. Okay, now, one other verse that I don't think I got up here. I didn't get up here. Exodus 12.25. 
just one of several, just, just do a search of the word promise in the Old Testament. This is the first use of the word in the Old Testament where God is speaking, or Moses is speaking rather, and says, it will come to pass, he's talking to the Jewish people, this is at the time of the Exodus, it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord your God will give you just as he promised. Who did he promise it to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant. Just as he promised that you will keep this service. So contextually, when you do a word study on this word promise, as it is used in Romans 4, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2 and 3, it relates back to that Abrahamic covenant promise. Okay. Now, now this is what Paul is doing. Now, he's talking to a Jewish audience that's extremely familiar with the content of the Old Testament. Now, most of the time, when you and I are talking to anyone, especially of a Jewish background, they're as ignorant about the Old Testament as, as Gentiles are. Don't assume that they, that they really know anything unless they happen to come out of some sort of uh, uh, orthodox background or training where they've really been taught more. Most of the time, they, they, they don't have that. So they're, they're just like a blank slate, as it were. Now, Paul, what Paul does, go, let's turn, our, turn back to Acts 13. What Paul does here is he's going to start weaving these Old Testament predictions together for us. And he says, uh, first of all, the background here has been the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Then he says in verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children. Who are their children? To whom does that refer? That refers to the fathers, the descendants of the fathers. So this is a reference to Jews. He's addressing a Jewish audience, and he's trying to connect the dots from them to show that Jesus fulfills these, uh, these promises. And he's using the, the, uh, the, the basic word group here from plerao, which is used again and again to indicate scriptural uh, fulfillment, he uses a perfect tense verb. Now, that's important because it shows that he's referencing completed action, action that's been completed in the past with the results that continue. So God fulfilled at some point in the past, completely fulfilled this with reference to us, their children, in raising Jesus raising up Jesus from the dead. He uses the standard word for resurrection, anastasis. So now he makes his point. He's changed from the promise to the confirmation of the promise. What confirms the promise? It's the resurrection. See, the resurrection is important not in relation to the work of salvation, but in terms of the application and implication of salvation to people, okay? So he now says, he now connects that, takes it to another level, that re this resurrection showing that this too was predicted in the Old Testament. So in that he raised Jesus, and now he's going to go to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, which reads, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you, and the word that is translated, the way it was translated 
into the Greek of the Septuagint. Now, now sometimes th- these things get a little technical, but you know, it's so funny. I run into this again and again and again. In fact, I was talking. A man called me today, sent me an email with some questions. I talked to him on the phone today, and he was telling me he teaches a small group up in Idaho, and he was telling me that he said this group came out of a somewhat charismatic background. They never had any really serious Bible teaching. They've been part of a church that sort of dwindled and died, and he's got a remnant of about 10, 10 or 12 people who meet in his home, and he's been teaching them, and he's been uh, live streaming, listening to, to us for the last couple of years, and he said, you've got to realize most of the, it, uh, this was all new for these people three or four years ago when they realized that, that the King James Bible wasn't really that great of a translation. That, that rocked their faith. And I remember last year uh, when we had, um, when Ron was here from Kiev and uh, Ron was talking about textual criticism and when he was here that week that he was teaching, he taught Thursday or Friday, I believe, and then on Saturday and, and on Sunday or Friday night and Saturday, something like that, he had a, a, a seminar down in uh, Pasadena at an at a independent Baptist church, I believe, on the history of the Bible. And he, he came, had to come by the house and pick up a book or something that afternoon. He was shaking his head and he said, you know, these people had no idea that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Now, we laugh about things like that. But the sad thing is these people make up the majority of, of evangelical Christians. And it's sad because we have pastors who don't, don't know much better and they can't teach them and train them. We need to be in, in, in prayer that God will raise up young men who will have a passion to know the Word of God and get off of their rear end and go to seminary and go get training to fill pulpits and teach people. Because there are a lot of people, I think, that are really hungry. It's just that they've been starved to death by ignorant shepherds and ignorant, ignorant pastors. And we need to pray that we would have a new generation of young men who would have the, the spiritual courage to go get training and to trust the Lord for their life and not to be so concerned about uh, the physical, logistical sustenance for themselves and their families, but would go to seminary and get trained. Um, it, it's just really sad. And, and the average evangelical today is just not, not very bright, and they, um, and they make decisions based on this abysmal ignorance. Uh, a friend of mine, Ed Heinsohn, Ed's a professor at Liberty uh, Bible College, and he's a strong independent Baptist. And he he said, "You got to." I remember one year when we were in Greece. He said, "You know, you got to love the Baptist people. They're wonderful people, but their theology is a mile wide and an inch deep, and they think it's an inch wide and a mile deep. And that's our problem: is people think they know the Bible and they're ignorant and they have no humility." And that is why the evangelical church in America is failing, and that's why we're coming under judgment in time from God is because people don't want to know the truth. So we have all kinds of, of, uh, of problems. Now, this verse comes out of the Old Testament. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, when you read that in English, it should occur to you a, a couple of questions. When is today? When is this said? 
When is this spoken? When is the today that's mentioned in the verse? And, and what does it mean to say, I have begotten you? If you look at the English, it's a perfect, I mean, at the Greek, rather, it is a perfect active indicative of ganao, uh, which means it refers to a completed past action. So at the time that this is spoken, it would be understood as, uh, today I have already begotten you. So it's not talking about the time in which the, the begottening takes place. But this word is used in another important Old Testament psalm, and we have to see the connection between the two, and that's the one I mentioned earlier, Psalm 110, verse 3. Psalm 110, verse 3. And so let's turn there because we have to connect some of these dots. Now, we've done that in some other ways in past series, especially when I've talked about uh, the whole issue of the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, and the significance of that ascension for our present uh, power and position in Christ. And that is something, if you've never studied that, it's, it's heavy, but you need to master it if you're going to get out of diapers. Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110.1 is a verse that is quoted probably more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, and in the parallel passages in the Gospels. It's, it's quoted in all three of the synoptics. It's quoted in Acts 2 in Peter's sermon. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five. It's quoted in uh, Hebrews one thirteen, and 1 Peter three twenty-two. and it's quoted here. And, uh, and I mean, the last phrase here relates to our quote in uh, Acts 13. So the Lord said to my Lord. Now, who is the first Lord? If you look at your English text, the uh, first L-O-R-D is uppercase, small caps. That is always a transliteration or a translation of the sacred tetragrammaton, the four letters for the proper name of God, Jehovah, wrongly translated Jehovah, Yahweh. Uh, Jehovah is really a compound word made up of the four consonants, of the sacred tetragrammaton, the four consonants of the name of God. And then because the Jews didn't want to uh, uh, pronounce that, they in, in, in antiquity they would pronounce Adonai. And so they, they put under the consonants of, of Yahweh, they put the consonants, belong, the Hebrew vowels rather, of, of Adonai. And that's where they got this Y-E-H-O-V-A-H. That's where they got those vowels. And that's, uh, but that's not a real word. They wrote the vowels there in order to remind people to say Adonai and not to read the word out. Today, in modern times, you will find Jews using the, uh, uh, the circumlocution Hashem, which means the name. And so when they see the name of God, Yahweh, there, they read Hashem, and they refer to God as the name, Hashem. So here we have the first Lord is Yahweh. The second Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And so you have two divine beings discussing something. The first one says to the second one, sit at my right hand. Now, some people may say, well, they're monotheists. Now, the monotheism of the Old Testament wasn't a singular monotheism. That came later in post-Second Temple uh, rabbinical Judaism. 
It wasn't there to begin with. It's not there here. You have two divine beings who are uh, in a unity. So the, the first one says to the second one, who is the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This occurs immediately after the ascension of Christ. God the Father, Yahweh, tells God the Son to sit and wait. We're going to wait out a period of time, and that's the church age, and when that comes to completion, there will be a judgment on the earth like nothing there has ever been. That's what we call the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. When that ends, based on Daniel chapter 7, that's when the kingdom is going to be given. That is when the, the, uh, the king, the, the second one, will receive his kingdom. His enemies are made his footstool at the battle of Armageddon. The second verse says, so there's this, the point I want to make, remind you of, is there's this huge battle that occurs just prior to the coronation and installation of the king. Second verse says, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. So in that second verse, the rule is is represented as, as being uh, established through uh, harsh means, strong discipline, the rod of your strength. And it is uh, ruling in the midst of the enemies. God, uh, the, 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 the second Lord, the Messiah, will establish his kingdom in the midst of hostility. He will put down the revolt of the kings of the earth, as we'll see in Psalm 2. And then we get to the verse that I want to focus on. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. Okay, now I want anybody want to volunteer and tell me what it means from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. That's the New King James. No idea what that means. It doesn't even make sense in English. Now, what I have up here on the screen uh, from the womb from the dawn See, notice the difference from the dawn. That This is the Tanakh, uh, 1986 Tanakh, the Jewish Old Testament translation. Uh, from the womb, from the dawn. And the New King James said from the womb of the morning. And then yours was the dew of youth. Do you see anything in there about birth, about being begotten? Nothing. Okay? Now, Notice what's at the bottom of the screen. The word on the left, now remember in Hebrew you only have consonants in the original Hebrew text, so what I did was I capitalized the consonants. So what you had was Y-L-D-T-K. Now if you look at the second word, that's the same consonants, Y-L-D-T-K. But the first word has different vowels. It shall do teka, whereas the second one is Yelitika, different words, like here and here. Same consonants, different vowels, making them different words. So the first word, the one on the left, represents the vowels that the Masoretes inserted when they were putting together the text in the 7th, 8th, 9th century A.D. Okay? The, the, the word on the right is using a different set of vowels that gives it if you translate it as yalad to give to beget, 
then you have a completely different meaning to the verse. And so if you look at it that way, then uh, Psalm 110 uh, becomes translated uh, something uh, like the Septuagint translation. See, we're not, I'm not just pulling this out of my hat because I'm a Christian and I want to translate this the way it would make sense for a Christian. The second reading there is the way the rabbis who translated the Septuagint in the second century before Christ into Greek. So the way they translated it into Greek indicates that they saw the second reading, not the first reading. So we have a historical witness from the time of Christ and before that read and translated this verse in a completely different way from the way it's translated by the 8th or 9th century A.D. Now, why did they change the translation later on? Because they wanted to, to, to stifle the influence of Christians who were claiming this was messianic uh, prophecy. The Septuagint is translated, From the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. Now think about that. In majestic holiness, from the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you. Quite a different sentence, but it makes a lot more sense. The Lord said to my Lord, who's speaking? Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand till I make your your enemy your footstools. Uh, The Lord shall send... Uh, Yahweh shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauties of holiness uh, from the womb of the dawn, I, that would refer to God the Father begetting the Son. When What is the term womb of the dawn means? From eternity past, from the beginning of the beginning. That's the imagery in the womb of the dawn. Now, so the, the king, the, the, the Messiah king represented here, who's the divine king, is stated to be begotten from the womb of the dawn. Now, this relates this also back to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which talks about that there will be a star coming forth from Jacob, from the tribe of Jacob, that there is this, this uh, birth relationship there. Now, what the, well, all, I, all I wanted to show here was a connection to the, this word begotten from Yalad and that showing that Psalm 110 presents the messianic king as a divine king seated at the right hand of God the Father awaiting a future victory. So what we have, if you remember, is you have the ascension of Christ. He goes up through the... Th- to the heavens, the first and second heaven, to the third heaven, and there he sits, a position of passivity on at the right hand of God, on the throne of God, not his own throne. He has not been enthroned yet, and he is sitting there until something. He's waiting for something, until God the Father is going to defeat his enemies and give him the kingdom. That's yet future from now. It hasn't happened yet. That's the backdrop for understanding Psalm 2. So hold your place here, and let's go to Psalm 2.
I know that I'm, when we get into all of this, it gets complicated. I'm going to have to review part of this again next time because I won't get all of this done tonight. But Psalm 2, let's just look at the Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the greatest messianic psalms in the Old Testament. It's quoted, again, several times. Different verses are quoted several times in the New Testament. It starts off with a question, various various questions, rhetorical questions, focusing on the fact that there is a, a, a military conflict taking place on the earth, and the nations are raging... The kings are gathering for battle against the Lord's anointed. Now, the Lord here is mentioned in verse 2, against the Lord. See, that's a uppercase L-O-R-D. That refers to Yahweh, against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, his Messiah. And what they are saying is what's recorded in verse 3. Let us break their bonds in pieces. In other words, they want to throw off all of this God stuff. God just wants us to keep us from having fun. He doesn't want to let us run our life the way we want to. He doesn't want us to run the kingdoms and the earth the way he wants to. You know, God doesn't like global warming, so we think global warming is right, so we got to get rid of God. God doesn't like gay marriage, so we have to get rid of God because he won't let us have gay marriage. Uh, God, uh, God is for the ownership of private property. We're for socialism, so we got to get rid of God because God's, uh, God won't let the kings have the money. He wants the people to have the money. Uh, God is in favor of self-defense, so he wants people to have weapons to defend themselves, and the government says, no, 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 we want to be viewed as the real Messiah who protects the people. And so the, king wanted, the kings want to throw off uh, divine mandates and they want to throw off divine divine government. So what their representative is saying is, let's break God's bonds. That's the there. Let us break God's bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then there's a pause. Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. That's God. He's laughing at these puny little politicians. He's laughing at the Democrats. He's laughing at the Republicans. He's laughing at all the... Uh, Christian socialist, he's saying, Christian socialist? What an oxymoron. Christian socialism is neither Christian nor socialism. It's just an abortion of politics. But that's what runs and has destroyed uh, Europe. Uh, so God's laughing at all these things. He's laughing at the Marxists and the Stalinists and the Chicoms and everybody else. He sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. God doesn't respect diversity. God hates diversity because diversity is human beings, the creature, asserting themselves over against God. And he hates that, so he laughs at them. God has no respect for rebellious creatures. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And that is always a reference to his divine judgment. And he will distress them in his deep displeasure. And then God speaks in verse 6. Yet I have set, past tense, my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, has God set his king on, the, on Zion yet? 
No, it didn't happen at the first advent. It's not happening spiritually now. It's in the future. So that tells us that the setting for this psalm is sometime in the future when the, the kings of the world are engaged in a massive military campaign against God. Same situation we have referenced in, in Psalm 110, verse 2. I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and then we come to our verse, verse 7. I will declare, now this is a change in speaker. The speaker in verse 6 is God the Father, because God is talking about his king, and his divine king is the Messiah. In verse 7, the Messiah speaks. And the Messiah says, I will declare the decree. What decree is that? This is a decree that God the Father made in eternity past. So sometime in the future, God the Son is going to take charge. When he is crowned king and takes the throne, he will remind the world of the decree that God made with reference to him from eternity past. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, when did this begottenness take place? In eternity past. The today is referencing the declaration of his begottenness. Now, we just have a couple of minutes left, so I need to kind of hit this kind of quick. I will declare the decree. This is the Messiah talking. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we have to look at that verb, begotten, and what that tells us is something that is is very significant. Once again, we have to look at it and recognize that when you look at the way the word is, is the vowels that are put in there, although all the grammars and all the lexicons say this should be in what's called the cow stem, which is the basic usage stem in Hebrew, it could easily also be uh, understood as a hifil, and a hifil is the causative stem. Either way, both stems, this is what you need to take away from this, both stems are in, used to indicate a declaration of something. Not saying, today I have begotten you, but saying, today I declare you are the begotten one. Now, there's a, that's an important difference. It's not talking about birth. Begotten is not a term for birthing. It is a term of indicating a distinct relationship of nature. It may involve being born, but its focus is on a son having the same nature as the father. And so here we're seeing that the son has the same eternal divine nature the one begotten has the same eternal divine nature as the one making the declaration. So the father-son language here is to be understood as figurative, not literal. Unlike Mormonism, which says that God, Elohim, came down and had sex, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God the Father who is representing his relationship to the second person of the Trinity as a one of, uh, of a relationship of, of essence, one of essence. In Israel, they never, the pagan religions all had the gods having sex with humans, uh, the gods having sex with one another, but never in, he- in, in Hebrew. They wouldn't stand for that. That was blasphemy. 
So the term, you are my son, indicates that the nature of the son is the same as that of the father. Now, what we have in this passage is an implied comparison or metaphor between the coronation of the king, where the crowning of the king at the beginning of his reign is being used as an, an analogously to, to birth as the beginning of life. So this is the beginning of the reign of, of the king. And so the declaration is the declaration related to the beginning of the Messiah's reign on the earth. Now, this is quoted in the same way in Hebrews chapter 1 uh, and having the same, the same sense. Now, the verb begotten is used of Jesus also in John chapter 1. No one has, John 1, 17, no one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten one has revealed him. John 3, 16, uh, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That only with begotten indicates a unique class of the word indicating that this is a uniquely generated a uniquely generated person, not born, but generated. And that is the exact language that was used in the Nicene Creed to emphasize the fact that Jesus was begotten and not made. Begotten doesn't mean created. It doesn't mean made. It doesn't mean generated. I mean, it, it doesn't mean birth. It means generated. It's an eternal generation is the way the uh, ancient church fathers uh, clarified this. So this is a declaration that is made uh, with reference to the beginning of the Messiah's reign on the earth. Now I'm just going to stop there because that gives us the core meaning here that Paul's referencing in Acts 13. See, because you're not Jewish and I'm not Jewish and we don't have a lot of in-depth facility with the Old, Old Testament theology on these passages, we have to spend a lot of time just explaining this quote that Paul has from Acts, uh, two, I mean from uh, Psalm two seven, and Acts thirteen thirty three, so that the significance of this verse makes some sense for us. Because he starts off first of all, he said in verse thirty two that what he's proclaiming is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Then in verse thirty three, he's going to connect this to David. And to the and to the Davidic divine king Messiah, and that messianic rule of Psalm two verse seven, and then when we get to verse thirty four next time, is he's going to connect that to the resurrection, okay? In Isaiah fifty five three, so uh, we're going to slow down. I'll hit all this again in review, and try to pull this together. Okay, you got a question, Diesel? Oh, in, so, in Psalm... What points of syntax are you using that, that point that back towards... It's, just the, it's the word begotten. It's the word there that... I went back to that slide here. It's that the Masoretic text has, has one vowel pointing, which makes it a word that doesn't make sense. And, and so the, the English translation is nonsensical. But if you change the points 
the vowels in the word, then it indicates begetting. So, so the, the way it should be translated is like what the Septuagint translates it. You're not going to see it in your English. Okay. Okay, that's not that that's not part of what I'm looking at here. I'm not I'm not honing in on that part of the verse. I'm just focusing on the relationship of the fact that um, that that at the end of verse three you have the uh, the 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 begottenness set of the Messiah. Now, if you, the first part of the verse is just talking about how uh, the, the your people that would be the saints that gather with the Messiah. At the end of, of the uh, at the end of the tribulation, when uh, he defeats all of his enemies, but the main point is looking at this idea that there is a, a, a relationship of the begottenness, an emphasis on that, with the beginning of the messianic reign. That's that's what we're driving at. We don't need. That's not relevant. Okay. It's not relevant. What we're looking at is a connection of of the fact that begottenness is related to the beginning of the messianic reign. That's all we need to do, and then connect that to Psalm 2. We're not doing a verse-by-verse analysis of Psalm 110, 1 through 3. We're just kind of making one point to connect it. Okay? Betty? Yeah, yours was the do of use is just out. That phrase is just that that translates the 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 word on the left. And if you look at you get something like that if you look at a lot of different translations ESV they all handle it that way because they're based on the Masoretic text. But if you look at the you look at the critical text of the Hebrew it's got the Greek Septuagint in the in the column and which is an alternate reading and the only way that makes sense is if you put in a different set of vowels. Same consonants. You're not changing the text any because the revealed inspired text was just the consonants Y-L-D-T-K. It's what consonants you put in there. And what I'm, what, what, what I'm saying and what others have said is that the Masoretes, and we saw this when I did that study in, 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 on Messianic prophecies last year, I pointed out three or four other places where this occurred in Messianic prophecies where the, the rabbis changed the vowels, it changed the words, and it shifted the, the meaning or the interpretation of the verse. And it, and it just messes up the prophecies because they don't want these prophecies that look like, oh, that's Jesus. They want to obfuscate that. They want to just just cloud it all over so that it doesn't look like that, and uh, and it makes a lot more sense to go with the Septuagint reading, which predates the Masoretic text meaning by a thousand years. Yeah, Bruce. Okay. Okay, I'll do that. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and help us to understand this as we uh, probe into your word to try to have an accurate understanding of your word and understand how you revealed it to us uh, in the original. I pray that you challenge us because we are going to rule and reign with Jesus when he comes, and right now we're in that preparatory stage, and we need to understand how 
that, that we're, we're in the process of growing to maturity and developing capacity so that we can rule and reign in the coming kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.